have majors that we hire ranging from, I mean, computer science, public health, engineering, you name it. It's when there's a specific opportunity that a team needs and, and they kind of develop the minimum qualifications for an opportunity, you'll see at RTI, they usually list a range of majors because we know that one's major doesn't reflect all of one's experience and internships and all those kinds of things. Hello, it's Marcy Bullock with season two of your favorite career readiness podcast. Learn tips on personal and professional development hear inspiring stories of overcoming obstacles. I devote my life to helping other people figure out what to devote theirs to. This is Marcy Bullock with the most important five Ps. Stay present, trust the process, explore your path, release the pressure valve, and unleash your potential. Hello, this is Marcy Bullock. Welcome to Wolfpack Career Chats. Today I have Dr. Jackie Olich live in my class at the end of October. Welcome, Dr. Olich. Hello, welcome to you. Hello, it's great to be here. It's so great to have you. And I've been telling my class about this and we've been so excited because Jackie and I met years ago at an academic leadership program called Bridges for Women in the University System. And we became fast friends. She has been a wonderful mentor to me. So I'm going to begin today's conversation by asking you, Jackie, to tell us about yourself to kick things off. Right back at you, Marcy. I've learned as much from you as anyone in the Bridges program. Thank you. Uh, so honored to be here today. Uh, my name is Jackie Olich. Uh, my current title is uh, Vice President of University Collaborations at RTI International, uh, headquartered in Research Triangle Park. But like many of you, I am cocooning at home and I'm joining you from Orange County, North Carolina today. Uh, actually, I'm trained as a historian. I may be the only Russian historian on your podcast. You are 100% the only Russian historian, the first and the best. Yes. So uh, I'm a first-generation college student on my dad's side. I grew up in the suburbs of New York. Uh, my father is an immigrant from the former Yugoslavia, what is current present-day Croatia. My mom is a retired first and third grade school teacher, and I'm really the melding of the two of them. Uh, I worked with my dad to start uh, a family business when I was a teenager that was very successful. So I have this kind of family immigrant startup business background. Uh, the company was sold in 2004. And when it was sold, we had over 100 employees. So it was a very successful experience. Definitely gave me a, a sense of what it means to be an entrepreneur and what it means to honor responsibility and commitments to the family. Uh, like many people who have a background in the entrepreneur community, I decided to get a doctorate in Russian history. So that's how I ended up at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, I came here to work with Dr. Donald Raleigh, uh, and I really never left North Carolina. I got my master's and my PhD from UNC Chapel Hill, and I worked uh, at UNC Chapel Hill as an administrator and faculty member for many years before I made the leap 
and joined RTI International in 2014 to be the founding director of the RTI International University Collaboration Office. For those of you who aren't aware, RTI International is the cornerstone uh, the, uh, of the Research Triangle Park. We recently celebrated our 60th anniversary last year, uh, back when we could be in, together in person and celebrate in person instead of online. Uh, so RTI is a mission-driven nonprofit research institute. And RTI's uh, mission is to improve the human condition by turning knowledge into practice. And for many people, RTI is the largest nonprofit that they have ever encountered. We have over 5,000 staff uh, with a global footprint in over 70 locations uh, around the globe, probably more now, frankly, um, that we're all working, many of us are working remotely. And uh, RTI is a special blend because we have over a billion dollars in revenue. So the scale and ability of what we're able to do is, is really something, it's really inspiring. And that's one of the things that really attracted me to, uh, to RTI. And also the opportunity to create a university collaboration office, kind of a, a startup nestled within an organization with such a long and illustrious history. Uh, so I uh, get to work, I oversee our internship program. Uh, RTI has uh, well over a hundred interns, undergraduate, graduate students each fiscal year. And RTI follows the government fiscal year. So you'll sometimes hear me differentiate between the government fiscal year or the RTI fiscal year and the calendar year. And additionally, uh, I oversee the RTI University Scholars Program, and it's a way that the Institute can continuously renew itself. Scholars from participating institutions apply, and it's a competitive process. And if selected, they are in residence now, virtually, uh, actively collaborating with our experts on important topics and projects. I'd say about 80% of RTI's portfolio is health-related in some way, global health, public health, health data. Um, we have a variety of business units. Probably the most, uh, one of the uh, most exciting parts of my job, I should say, are the strategic initiatives and competitive seed funds that my office, the University Collaboration Office, uh, manages and leads. For the institute, uh, the most recent one we just recently announced uh, a new initiative with Rush Medical University in Chicago to jumpstart COVID team research. We also have a our first competitive seed fund was with Duke University. We have one that's ongoing with UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health that has more of an environmental health focus. And then we also, our largest one that we just wrapped up uh, was the Game Changing Research Incentive Program with your beloved NC State University. So that's my overview, Marcy. And that overview is, is really amazing when we listen to you coming from this family business, first generation college student, 
And then moving on to get your doctorate degree, working in the academic side, moving into the nonprofit, and making a difference in this mission of improving the human condition. That's, I, I feel like RTI could hire any major. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because in our class, we have STEM majors, we have humanities majors, we have business majors. And you're almost like an entire community of professionals. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Well, I'd say with RTI, we need a variety of mindsets, skill sets, and toolkits to be able to do what we do. Interestingly, and I know Marcy knows this story, when I found out I was going to be joining RTI, one of my, uh, I think my very first day, I sent a note to colleagues in human resources. And I said, you know, we have over 5,000 staff, I think 900 PhDs. How many people have a PhD in history? I want to meet them. And they said, one. And I said, oh, great. Can you give me her number or his email? And they said, no, you're the only one that has a doctorate in history. And I said, that's crazy. But when you look through the list, uh, we have majors that we hire ranging from, I mean, computer science, public health, engineering, you name it. It's when there's a specific opportunity that a team needs and, and they kind of develop the minimum qualifications for an opportunity, you'll see at RTI, they usually list a range of majors because we know that one's major doesn't reflect all of one's experience and internships and all those kinds of things. But uh, we have a, a variety of disciplines represented uh, amongst our, our RTI staff at many different levels. It's so diverse. And you mentioned some of the work that your organization is doing with COVID right now during this pandemic. Are you slowing down on college grad internship hiring and transition to the per permanent workforce hiring? Or are things revving up for you or staying stable? Well, this is I would file this un, under the uh, things don't always go according to plan. And that's okay. Work with it. Back, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, but late February, early March, we had to make a decision in RTI about our internships for the summer. And that's when we decided to go 100% virtual. Things were just moving too quickly. There's too much uncertainty. We were concerned about the, the health and, and well-being of our staff and our, and our prospective interns. So I thought that we might hold our numbers about even. But by switching to virtual internships, we actually saw a surge in the number of interns. We found that some other companies, some other organizations um, weren't as well set up, frankly, to do a virtual internship that was meaningful or felt there was too much uncertainty. They rescinded offers to students. So we ended up having more interns than we ever had. I believe the last count, uh, I think we had about 97, 98 summer interns alone, which was a lot for us. Sometimes we'll see um, 60 or 70 in a summer. But I found that uh, particularly the interns that were looking for meaningful research-based opportunities, we're able to find them. Interestingly enough, we also had a, we also kind of piloted, and I think here this kind of goes a little bit back to my, my entrepreneurial, um, don't say no offhand, 
early on, we were contacted by Duke University. They were concerned about their doctoral students who summer research or teaching or travel plans uh, had been completely disrupted by COVID. And what they were interested in is, was there, were there abilities, if they brought some resources to the table, could we match them with projects and researchers at RTI so they could get, they could use this time to get some applied experience. So we created, you know, I reached out to, to colleagues at RTI and we actually were able to create meaningful new opportunities very, very quickly um, for a whole cohort of, of uh, uh, Duke PhD students in the humanities, social sciences and uh, applied sciences. So I think there's, there's opportunity even in all of this uh, tumult. And that's really inspirational that you increased the number of internships and allowed for this virtual experience that was so meaningful. I'd love to hear you share more about your opinion on how you personally have adapted in the last eight months to all of the changes with the virtual collaborations, with our students taking all their classes online. They came to campus. They were sent back home. It's been a tough time. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, actually, I gave a talk recently to the Society of Research Administrators with some reflections about virtual collaborations, kind of what I've seen six months in. And it was interesting. I found during that exchange, many, um, many members of the audience wanted like very specific or I don't know, we're kind of interested, like and you asked, like, what am I seeing? What's different? What's going on now? So a couple of things I would say is, for any leader of any team, the most important thing now is the safety and physical and mental well-being of the team members. So the first thing I focused on is my team, making sure that my team has the resources that they need, that they feel supported, they feel connected. We had to revisit some of our communications norms. We went all remote in March. So that was kind of the first thing that the first, my first priority. And then I was, uh, really keeping up in the news and with my network about what things looked like at NC State, what things looked like at Duke, what things looked like at UNC Chapel Hill or Rush. Because it's really important whenever you're working on any kind of strategic partnership, you know, it's like any relationship in life. It's really not all about you. You need to listen with a sense of understanding. So that kind of um, that history I guess, skill set that I have about researching and listening and, and archiving. So once I got a set, I made sure that my team was set. And then I made sure that I was understanding what was going on with our partners. And then also our internal stakeholders, RTI, how my colleagues in different units were doing. Uh, then I'd say the next, maybe the last, <laughs> I don't know. Then I focus more on myself. What were my routines? What did I need to change? What did I need to do? Where were there opportunities? How could I be compassionate with myself? Um, how could I try to make sense of the, the difference in the passage of time? I don't know if some of you have found, I think as a historian, I'm really interested in this. There are some elements where I feel like time has lost all of its meaning. And there's just this um, ground, Groundhog Day-like, every day is the same. I'm talking to you in front of this computer. Did I eat lunch yesterday? What did I have for dinner? Did I do anything last weekend? Can't remember. But then at the same time, some in some ways, things have accelerated and there's been more urgency. Just particularly, like for example, if someone contacts me and they're looking for a COVID-related partner, that's my top priority. Then I have to hustle and get that person that 
resource that they need. So I would say uh, working like many of us and trying to have some different routines, but also what I find helpful is um, doing a lot of reading of fiction and nonfiction. I'm also going back to some, some diaries to see how other people made sense of epic uh, transitionary times in real time. Uh, the other thing I've been doing is like going back to former versions of myself and reminding myself when I faced adversity and how I triumphed over that. And also some things where I have, uh, I have fun and I give myself permission to have fun. So I, I for example, I started playing um, tennis again after many, many years of not playing tennis. And I don't think that I played competitive tennis when I was a, uh, when I was a girl and, and in high school. And I don't think that I would have given myself or made the time to go back and do that if it wasn't during COVID. And then you just need some frivolous distractions too, as well as some of this important work. Uh, I'm in the RTI Executive Fantasy Football League, and that's been fun keeping up with that, that kind of pace uh, and like, uh, communicating with my colleagues in a different way. So these are some of the things that I do, Marcy. Those are really great. I think I love the one where you just gave yourself permission to have fun and also reading these epic uh, insights from previous generations that have gone through things like this. And you, I know, have this concept of stages that we're going through during this pandemic. Will you talk a little bit about that and maybe some tips, some really practical tips for this group about how to help them move in through these stages and thrive? Sure. Um, there's a, a concept that we used to talk about in graduate school that I'm seeing it gets more popular usage now called liminal space. And liminal, I believe some of you who studied Latin know liminal is Latin for threshold. And uh, we're in this transitionary and liminal space, and we don't know what comes next. And that's on so many different levels in terms of health, politics, economics, um, systemic racism, social general um, mobility and socioeconomic mobility. And I found in the beginning of COVID, I was sh in shock. I, I could, what's going on? I had been RTI and NC State and Duke and UNC Chapel Hill and some other senior leaders had been talking. And actually, in some ways, I think Duke was a little bit of a um, a canary in a coal mine because we had some intel, our community had some intel from Duke, from their campus in China, from Kunshan about what we might be facing. But none of us could comprehend when it actually hit on this scale this quickly. So the, there was definitely shock and panic. Everyone's hoarding toilet paper. Everyone's worried about their, their food supply. And then um, you uh, get into this next mode where you're checking on everyone. How's your sister doing? How's your mom doing? How's your dad doing? How's your neighbor, elderly neighbor doing? This person actually lives alone and is going through this alone. I need to check in with this friend or this colleague. And then um, we kind of get into this, um, okay, what do I do with this nervous energy? My patterns have changed. Uh, one thing that I did was I actually uh, decided to go back to school. I took a Coursera course. Uh, taught by researchers from Johns Hopkins uh, about how to be a contact tracer. Uh, and so then I learned some of the, and I don't have a degree in public health, even though ironically I'm an adjunct 
faculty member at the UNC Gilding School of Global Public Health right now, but I felt like I needed to learn more about the vocabulary, the concepts uh, related to some of the complexities of, of tracing to be able to hang with my colleagues who worked in these areas. So I did, a, in addition to a lot of, uh, a lot of reading, uh, I did do an online course, which I felt gave me some sense of accomplishment at the end, um, so, uh, which was very, uh, was very helpful. And now I feel like I'm in more of this kind of acceptance phase or acknowledgement phase where this is what it is right now. And I need to just acknowledge or accept that and work with what I have and stay strong for whatever comes next. That's that third stage of just getting that strength and being ready for what comes next. I can relate to everything you said. I remember the day that my husband called me in March and said, get to the grocery store. Everything's closing down tomorrow. Put on your mask. And I just like felt this surge when I was driving to the Harris Teeter, like, oh my gosh. And even now when I walk in a grocery store, I feel that same panic. I'm like, why am I panicking in this grocery store? And then, like you said, checking on people and then moving into, you know, allowing yourself to try new things and also to be open to what comes next. Those, those wisdoms and insights are so important. So, so far we have three questions. I'm going to turn to Dinah first and ask her to unmute now. And I'm going to let you ask the first question to Dr. Olich. What has been your favorite issue or project to work on at RTI? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say one of the things that has been uh, my highlight has been um, strategic seed funds that we have kind of as a, as a category, because that was something that we kind of we co-create with our partners. So we're mutually investing and, and shaping and co-creating these competitive seed funds. So the strategy part of me and the research part of me can say, okay, let's evaluate. This is our research portfolio that we share with, the, say, um, the UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health. We do a lot of work with UNC Gillings. We have many faculty members, we have uh, many researchers who have degrees from UNC Gillings. We do a lot of work together. We get a lot of interns from them. But if we look at all of their departments and all of their areas of expertise, we're underperforming in environmental health and engineering. How can we change that? So then we deliberately structured a call to jumpstart and encourage teams to form that didn't form before to apply for this opportunity. And similarly with the GRIP, Game Changing Research Incentive Program, uh, worked very closely with John Horowitz, who's now the Associate Vice Chancellor for Research at NC State. We learned from former uh, Vice Chancellor for Research, Al Rebar, that NC State was launching this new seed fund that was gonna be the largest one in NC State's history and it was like, wow, let's get in on that opportunity. Maybe we can make it bigger. So I think with these seed funds and these competitive seed funds, that co-creation in amplifying or increasing our impact piece really speaks to me. Excellent question, Dinah. Next up is Grant. What would you like to ask? All right. So this question is on behalf of Winberry. Winberry is stating that as an education major going into the virtual teaching world, do you have any team management tips that I could use to keep up with the well-being and mental health of my students since they'll be the team that I'm leading? Well, that's uh, that's important work. 
and there are some strategies that work. Uh, I think the most important thing is showing up and being your authentic self and not uh, uh, being overly optimistic on days when you don't feel overly optimistic, which gives your will give your students permission um, to bring their true selves to the classroom. Uh, one thing I, I was just talking about with a colleague is the importance of people being able to share in a way where there's no stigma or less stigma, which can be challenging in a chat room when everything is attributed to, to everyone. So thinking about ways where you can um, uh, encourage feedback or inputs that are not attributable to any one person, but that can be shared. Back in the day when I, I would teach at UNC, I would always do this um, halfway through the semester. I'd take out a piece of paper, have all the students take out a piece of paper and write without putting their name on it. What's working on one side, flip it over, and what's not working on the other side. And then I would take those and I would read those. And that would help me a lot. So I think coming up with ways in the virtual space to do those kinds of check-ins are very important. That's excellent. And thank you, Grant, for asking that on behalf of Winberry. And also on behalf of you, Grant, I know you're um, studying an area that would fit in great with RTI. Why don't you share that with Dr. Olich and see what she thinks? Yes. So right now I'm an economics major with a history minor. So um, I'm imagining with the how RTI is a nonprofit and how you have to really um, manage the resources that you do have um, can sometimes be a challenge. So you talk about how maybe an economics major could fit in at RTI? And a history minor. Oh my goodness, what a combination. <laughs> he's got the he's got the leveraging there going on. I, see, I, I if I had my browser open, I would I would Google it and, and put it in the chat. Uh, it'd be really interesting, Grant and, and, and some of uh, some of you, my esteemed colleague Sarah Lawrence and our uh, economic development colleagues just released a report on uh, specifically with some recommendations for North Carolina economic development uh, in light of COVID. And that's been getting a lot of attention. So this idea of this kind of policy recommendation piece, it's like, okay, what are some opportunities and some challenges for uh, North Carolina in particular? And it was really fascinating because I was on last, last week, I was on the Leadership North Carolina uh, 25th anniversary call and the topic of uh, inclusive economic development and equity came up and someone else posted in the chat a link to the RTI report that Sarah Lawrence and her colleagues had just done. So that I would point you to that grant because I think your, you know, your training in history gives you a sense of context, how to research, how to frame questions, how to critically think. And also don't underestimate how important it is to be able to synthesize what you've learned and make recommendations or, you know, what we might call in some context, uh, um, an executive summary or an executive briefing. Um, and then that economic development piece, uh, equity, post-COVID, um, those types of, uh, of, of projects are going to be increasingly important in RTI and everywhere. So I would point you to that. I think that that group might be of interest to you becoming familiar with their work. Thank you. Wow, that's amazing. And Grant has such a bright future ahead. He's going to have a choice of many offers. Next up is Michael with his question. Hey, so this uh, is kind of the uh, kind of on the opposite spectrum of uh, Dinah's question where she asked your favorite issue or project you worked on. My question is, 
Um, was there a project that you worked on at RTI that you may have like really struggled to accomplish or figure out? Um, and what's the biggest takeaway that you, that you took from, um, you know, accomplishing it or, um, you know, finally making it through the, the hard time? Oh, this is a good, this is a juicy, as Marcy says, this is a, is a, is a juicy question. I'm going to take a sip of water for dramatic pause here. While I, I love it. Yeah. I love that Michael's challenging Dr. Olich with this one. Then she had to take a sip. Woo woo. I'm a big, uh, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, failure is a learning experience. And Absolutely. also, uh, being bad at something is the first step of being good at something. So I like to, I like to see where people are at when they, when they face challenges in the professional world and what they got out of it. Sure. Absolutely. I, I don't want to sidestep the question, Michael, but can I share something that's a little bit more about my, my personal challenge or an opportunity that I found myself unprepared for when I was at RTI? Absolutely, please. Okay. So uh, a few years ago, I was asked to speak at a, uh, an international conference um, in Flanders for the celebration of the Flanders Research Institute's uh, uh, anniversary. And I was uh, completely unprepared for that opportunity. I thought that uh, it was a very large conference. I was on a panel. Uh, I thought that uh, I, I had prepared well. And when I got there, I found out that I had gotten added to, in addition to the panel I was prepared for and had accepted, at the last minute they asked since I was coming already, and I guess because they were paying for my ticket, if I would be on the opening session talking about the future of research and researchers. And I said, yes. And when I got there, there, it was this giant, giant venue with smoke and lights and I had to get lavaliered. And I was on a panel with four brilliant um, leaders from around the world. And I was asked on stage to speak on behalf of research in the United States. What is the American point of view about research and science? <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. I think I would have just like walked off at that moment. So I would say that was a failure in the sense that I didn't think through that possible scenario. Um, I have had some media training, but I uh, quickly had to say, this is my point of view or my experience at our independent research institute. I don't speak for all of the United States. I, I could feel some of the anti-Americanism uh, there as well. So I was trying to um, clarify who I was and what I was comfortable speaking to. But that's something that um, I look back on. Um, I look back on Michael and I think, wow. If I could do that one over again, um, I don't know. My my people said I, I didn't look like a, a deer in the headlights, but boy, I sure felt like one when I saw the when I saw the lights and the smoke and the and oh my the gosh, it was really something. Whoa, the fact that you made it through that is very impressive with all that pressure on you, just representing the entire country. No, <laughs> no biggie at all. Well, we have one minute left. Our time has flown. We're going to move to our time machine question. We're going to zoom you into the year 2040. What advice would you give to the 2020 Jackie Olich? So 2040, may we all, may we all be there and be doing well and thriving. Uh, I would say uh, two things. One, I would say Jackie of 2020, keep up 
with your tennis. It's something that brings you joy and you're not as good as you used to be when you were 15 or 16. And that's okay because you can still play it in 2040 if you pace yourself and, and do it now. Uh, and the other thing I would say is uh, good job spending so much time with your family. In 2020, you have your priorities straight. Those are wonderful words to leave us with. Thank you, Dr. Olich. Thank you all.